Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Everything we treasure must be dismantled in our minds. Even the phrase Bible study has been exploited, contorted, twisted, and distorted into a micro-narrative of Occidental religion and philosophy. When I say the word Bible, it is nothing but an idea formed in your narcissistic mind with Anglo-Saxon letters, a romanticized memory of a self-centered gathering with friends for self-serving discussion. Shocking as it may be in the West, if everyone in the room is talking about themselves, everyone present is a narcissist. When I was a kid, Americans thought everyone was jealous of them. Some still do. Now, Americans think everyone is a narcissist. I'll leave it to the psychologists to unpack that puzzle for you. With respect to the Bible, we do not study it, nor do we study its story or, God forbid, its narrative. We deal with a text and the archaeology of words, of biblical terminology, and especially in the case of Semitic languages, but also Greek, we deal with roots and their functionality. When you deal with scriptural terminology, your ability to form a picture in your mind is mitigated by the text. Moreover, whatever you are left with, because as a human being, let's face it, you are a natural narcissist slash idolater. You are left with something. So whatever you are left with is formed with the letters of biblical languages which mitigate your voice. In such a meeting, people do not gather to, quote, study the Bible. They gather in silence to be taught by one voice who transmits not its meaning, but its terminology to them. The French existentialists hated that, and so do you. Like the song says, I feel fine. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 512 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The problem with theology is that people quote scripture, refer to scripture, talk about scripture, historicize scripture, and use terms. We've even done it on the podcast, Rich. We often refer to terms like halak or halakha and imagine that the word has a positive connotation, because very often it corresponds to the Greek verb peripateo. But it has other connotations, and that's why, once again, 
the work that we're trying to do on this podcast is not the archaeology of a narrative, let alone the archaeology of a story. It's the archaeology of a text. We are dealing not even with words, but with roots. The more that I do the work of lexicography, the more I'm struck with the erroneous methodology of Western scholarship. You see very clearly that there are Hebrew roots, and they deal with these roots as though the same root is a different word in the dictionary. I'm amazed, actually. We'll come back to this as we work through the text, and I'll talk about this root, halak, and some other terms as we go through the text, but I just wanted to make that note right out of the gate, that we have to avoid historicization. And what I mean by that is looking at something in the world and then talking about scripture. You can do it if you go back to the ancient setting, but we're not in the ancient setting. We're just not. We're going back into the ancient world of the Bible, and we're doing archaeology there. And then we're coming back and giving a witness of what we saw. But it's so difficult. It's so counterintuitive. And in fact, I want to tip my hat to Deacon Anthony at St. Elizabeth, because he's been grappling with this in his preaching. He's been catching himself when he's trying to explain, for example, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's trying to find the language. He's trying to find a way of explaining to the assembly that Paul isn't talking to us. He's talking to specific individuals in a locality in a world that is gone. We have to start thinking this way. Otherwise, we fall in the trap of trying to make it relevant today. And the minute you do that, people start building something else in their minds. And that's when we get into idolatry. So it's hard work. It's hard work. I was chatting with someone this week and trying to explain that Scripture is constantly killing our gods. And the only way to prevent ourselves from building new gods is to allow the archaeology of terminology to keep killing the gods in our head. That's what we're trying to do. And those who have heard us work on the text over the years will notice that as we've become more disciplined, we've become more terminological. This is such an important topic to understand because unfortunately, so many Americans don't know another language fluently and don't understand the process of what is actually happening when you're trying to translate from one language to another, when you're trying to interpret it for somebody who doesn't know that language. And I was just talking to the court interpreter, dealing with people who never actually get their voice heard in court because they're always speaking a language and the court will never hear the language that they speak. If they speak Spanish, the court will hear what the interpreter does their best to convey so that they understand, but they're never actually going to have their voice heard. When we talk about the problem of translations, what I'm saying is that it's the weakness of the translation process itself. It's not that the King James were so much better than the NIV people or whatever. They were doing an impossible task. They were trying to make Hebrew and Greek understandable to people who don't know Hebrew and Greek. That's technically impossible. One thing that I've been really interested in as you're going through the correspondences of the original Hebrew and the Septuagint translations is seeing that one Hebrew word can be translated by multiple Greek words because Greek has to have a level of semantic narrowness that Hebrew doesn't. Just recently, we were talking about bowing down. We can't even say it in English because when Peter bows, he just bows, but the leper bows too. That doesn't make any sense in English. But if you know Greek, you see that there's a link, but a difference. Well, Hebrew doesn't have that difference either. In Hebrew, it's really important to understand the context 
and the syntax if we're going to understand what the word means. But then when we translate it into English, we may be stuck having to make a distinction that the Hebrew doesn't make. I was just looking at Joel chapter 2. I was working through the translation, and I realized that there is a word in Hebrew. It just so happens that the same word can mean teacher and rain. The word is more, rain, R-A-I-N, that comes out of the sky. The author plays on it. So the first time you hear it, you think it's a teacher, but then the second time you hear it, you know it has to be rain. And so now you're wondering, which is giving you the nourishment, the teacher or the rain? And the answer is yes. And that's a beautiful thing you can do. But we don't have a word in English that's going to play on the meaning of rain and teacher. We don't have that. The Septuagint was stuck. And you can see the way they get stuck because Greek doesn't have a word that will do that either. Even Syriac doesn't have a word that does that. And that's another Semitic language. As you work through it, you realize that when the Greek translator was trying to convey the Hebrew, the word they used was food, which I thought was really funny. Like if it's going to be teacher or rain, why would you use food? Scholars try to figure out what's going on. Maybe there's a problem in the manuscript tradition and it got confused. No, the Septuagint at least could link the two of them by talking about what the result is. Both the rain and the teacher provide nourishment. So they used that word to translate it in order to try to somehow convey this double meaning. Of course they fell short. They had to fall short. They were doomed. Translation is a doomed enterprise. You're going to do your best, but it's because the hearer doesn't hear the original voice. Like Father Paul always said, the Septuagint is an invitation to hear the original Hebrew text. We are offering an invitation to hear the original Greek text of Luke. This translation is only an invitation. You can't say you've been to Amsterdam because you read a guidebook on Amsterdam. You can't say you know Amsterdam just because you read this book. If you're going to say you know Amsterdam, you have to go to Amsterdam and spend time there. If you want to understand scripture, you have to understand that it was written in another language. The word that was spoken was spoken in Hebrew and in Greek and Aramaic too in certain places. Knowing those languages is the only way you're going to hear the voice of the one who spoke it, of God. You cannot hear God's voice. You can only hear a translation of his voice. And it's going to obscure certain things. And so this is hoping that there will be some who will go and try to read the Hebrew and the Greek, even if it's faulting, even if it's not perfect, even if you're having a tough time and sweating, it's worth the time and it's worth the effort. Explain, as Father Paul says, terminology. Because if you try to translate, you're building something. If you expound, you're building something. If you explain words, you're helping people and you're helping yourself because you're conveying something that gives people at least some information and some tools to maybe grapple with what the text is actually saying in its own right, on its own terms. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. It doesn't mean that you can't then, having explained the meaning of a few words, say something, but you have to help people stay as close to the Adama, as close to the ground as possible. The more you stray from the terminology of Scripture in its own right, the more you run the risk of people hearing something and building something that God is tearing down. But the news about him was spreading even farther 
and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. You know, the more one hears scripture, the more one hears scripture. This word in Greek, diérhome, spreading, one can't but think about what spreading means in the Old Testament. Spreading and gathering in the Bible is a central issue. You mentioned what this beautiful Jewish academic said just a couple episodes ago, Richard. Those who are under God's instruction are kept always in exile. God's people in the story are kept in exile. So this is a technical word to spread. In the Septuagint, one of the words that it corresponds to is abar, which means to pull along, to move through, or to pass over. It's the same word in Arabic, abara, which means he crossed over. When you just look at the consonants, it depends on how you vocalize it, because it also means Hebrew. The first thing I thought about was this example you gave, that God's people are kept in exile. Because here, the word that means to move through is also the word for Hebrew. It's the same three letters. Now, you can't understand the power of this interconnection, and you can't call it an interconnection because it's the same three letters. It's simply a question of how they are vocalized in context. If you look at the three letters from the perspective of an English speaker, looking at three letters on the page, it's the same word. Does it mean move through, pull along, or does it mean Hebrew? It depends. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. That's, for example, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 17. So we have right out of the gate in verse 15, this concept of passing through related to spreading. So this is the teaching. It's news. It's the logos in verse 15, the dabar, spreading, passing through even farther. And then right away, you have the concept of gathering, which I think contrasts. And I mentioned already that it corresponds to different words, but it corresponds to halak. Now, obviously, halak means to walk, but it also means to go away or disappear. The same three consonants, the same triliteral in Arabic, corresponds to the Hebrew meaning of disappearing. He perished. He died. You can see the relationship between walking, going, and then ultimately disappearing towards the horizon in the wilderness. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel and will come together from the land, Eris, of the north to the land that I give your fathers. That's Jeremiah chapter 3. There's another example in Zechariah that relates to gathering. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. Sin erchome here in Luke to come together. And so, in one sense, you have the life sustaining teaching spreading in verse 15. But as the teaching spreads, which is ultimately God's will, he scatters. There are a couple more terms I want to talk about. Again, this word healing corresponds to Yasab. He sat, he dwelled. He's dealing with their sickness, asthenia. When you talk about sickness in theological terms, people get into this nonsense about why would a good God cause suffering? And is it anybody's fault that they get sick? I just want to be very clear. And I want you all to take out your pens and write this down or 
mark the time on the podcast so that you can go back and find it later so you know exactly what I'm about to say. Who cares? The whole discussion is stupid because we're dealing with literature. Stop historicizing. Stop doing your apologia. It's all nonsense. Nobody goes to an Avengers movie and then tries to figure out, I mean, kids do it, but tries to figure out the truth of, you know, Thanos. I mean, come on, it's literature. Just get over yourself. In literature, if you're sick, it's because there's a problem. In the genius of the Septuagint translators of the Hebrew, this word, asthenia, corresponds to kashal, which means to stumble, to stagger. It means offense also, so it's linked to sin. It's linked to causing offense or to some kind of a hindrance, a stumbling block. Sound familiar? There's actually an interesting colloquialism in Arabic, kashal, which is an expression of disappointment. Yakashli. You're disappointed when there's some kind of an offense or a stumbling. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am laying stumbling blocks, mishkolim before this people, and they will stumble against them, fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend. Jeremiah 6.21. There's another example. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight but may they be overthrown, mushkalim, before you deal with them in the time of your anger, Jeremiah 18, 23. In other words, God is making them stumble. He's causing the sickness in order to use it for his purpose, for his honor. This is horrible if you teach at a university department who's trying to make the Bible look good in modern times. It's not attractive. You can't be interviewed on CNN or the New York Times as an apologist for the Bible and justify this verse. But that's not the point. It's literature. You can't take this out of context. You have to accept what it says and what the text is doing with its terminology because these people are stumbling over stumbling blocks in verse 15. The word is spreading. The seed is being scattered. And the crowd is gathering. They are stumbling because someone, namely the Most High, is causing them to stumble so that they come before the Lord. But that doesn't mean that they gather permanently. This verse has so many links, again, in the original language. You brought up the Erchome. That's when the fame went abroad. That's the way the King James says it. And then the people came together, Sinerchome. So we have a link in the Greek, vierchome, synerchome, going through and going together. Those are linked together. You can't link them in English. When you have this in Greek, you have this latent connection between the way the word goes out and brings the people together. There's constant movement on both sides. The word for fame or knowledge or news, the word in Greek is logos. It's the word that goes out. Periavtu, the word about him. Didn't Jesus want this as a testimony about Moses and the teaching of Torah? Yet what they heard was about Jesus. They didn't hear a commandment to be obedient to the word of the Lord, which you already know from Torah. You brought up this word that's translated as infirmities 
in the King James, asthenio. It comes from stheno, which means to strengthen. Asteno is to weaken. It's their weaknesses. If you put it together, there's this word going out, the people coming together, and it becomes the word about Jesus and the cool thing that Jesus did, as opposed to the word of Jesus, be obedient to what Moses taught you. So they heard the wrong thing, and Father Paul has accused every single one of us of this, that you hear what you're going to hear. Your notes are not authoritative. What I say is authoritative. What Jesus said was authoritative. Listen to Moses. And they say, what, Jesus? You can heal us? Awesome. And then they come. It's not what Jesus said. They come to be healed. They don't come to listen. They aren't even hearing. So if they are listening, they're going to be listening to what they're hearing, but what they're hearing is not what Jesus said. This contrast of motion, the word about him, and then the crowds, the many crowds, ochlipoli, lots of people coming to hear, akuin, and to be healed. What are they going to hear? What they want to hear, just like they did before, because they're going to hear the logos that went out, which is, this guy was healed. Instead of the word that Jesus spoke, show yourself to the priest as a testimony to them. Not a testimony about me and what I can do, but according as Moses commanded. This has always been the commandment. Since the very beginning here in Luke, Jesus is the anti-king, the anti-leader, going against kingship, and that we had to start over with the whole genealogy and do a new thing, where God is the one who declares him his son. But he didn't declare him his son so that people could be healed. God doesn't need a son so that people can be healed. God's son can speak authoritatively the word as the one who's going to inherit the kingdom. That's what it means to be a son legally. This is who God is sending, and that is the logos that's supposed to be going out. That's not the logos that these people are gathering around, the synergomet, that they're gathering themselves. This is different than the word synagogi, which is the synagogue. It's a different verb. They're gathering around, they're coming with, they're coming together, but the word is the one that they hear and not the one that was spoken. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. The word is being scattered, being spread according to the will of the Father. It's not locked in one locality. And this word, which the New American Standard Bible translates as slipped, it just means to move away or to withdraw. Ipochoreo only occurs twice in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. The second time is in chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking them with him. He withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. You follow him and he teaches you. He's the shepherd. Jesus is the locum tenens. And where do they go? To the Erimos, the famous Midbar of Father Paul's The Rise of Scripture. And Midbar, we just heard Logos, the place where this word is spoken from in the wilderness. This is where Jesus is leading these crowds whom God caused to stumble. So then you start thinking about the functionality of halakha, right, that it can mean to perish or to disappear. You're going to the wilderness to perish? From whose perspective? What does it mean to walk towards the horizon and disappear? 
Because you imagine that you're finding life in the city where the king controls security. When you're living in a big city, you look at those living in the desert like they're not human. Like those who are outside the empire don't have life. They're perishing in the wilderness. But are they perishing if they're in the care of God's hands? This terminology means something in a scriptural context. It's like this word in Arabic, chalisna. It means save us, but it also means cut us off, bring us to an end. Like the common expression in Arabic, chalas. These words have a functionality that is nahashik. It doesn't work in English. When you say save us in English, you just sound like a victim who's saying poor me. In Arabic, it's something different. So someone hearing the liturgy in Arabic is not attending the same church as someone hearing the American Orthodox liturgy, with all due respect. The last example is also very interesting in verse 16, and that's this word pray, prosefchome. It connects to this word in Hebrew, fella, which is also an Arabic word, which means to break. It's the same thing I was just saying about chalisna, which, you know, can mean save us. It can mean cut us off, bring us to an end. Fala in Hebrew means judge, arbitrate, or advocate and pray. The original meaning in Hebrew meant he cleft, he split, he decided. So there's a relation to the Arabic yeflu, to strike with the sword in Arabic. The same root can also mean a barren desert. So again, there's this link with judgment, with barrenness, cutting off, cutting with the sword, breaking, and it corresponds in the Septuagint to prosephome. Now, there's a very interesting usage in 1 Samuel. If one man sins against another, the judge shall judge him, philel. But if a man sins against the Lord, who shall intercede? Yitfalel for him. So there it is. The play on language is so beautiful. On the one hand, it means judge, philel. But then in the same sentence, it means intercede, yitfalel. That's why Semitic poetry is unparalleled. You have this beautiful play, philel, yitfalel. On the one hand, judge. On the other hand, intercede. And then it suddenly makes sense because the judge cuts with the sword. He divides. He mediates. But at the same time, he can intercede. But Jesus himself would often run away, slip away to the midbar and pray. The one who would judge them would also be the one who would intercede for them as he moves out into the wilderness, leading them to the midbar before the one true shepherd. Then when you realize that later in Luke, he's leading them to the kingdom where he will speak the words of the shepherd, it starts to actually make sense what's happening in these verses. The Greek adds some subtlety to this. He doesn't simply go into the wilderness. It's actually endes erimis. He goes into the wildernesses. What is it about the wildernesses? Why use the plural here instead of the singular? Well, it's easy to be confused if you're not following the Greek that we had before, because every translation had a tough time with this, because in verse 12, he was going into a certain city, he was going into a particular city, whatever, and mia don poleon, in one of the cities. Once he's in one of those cities, he has to go into the wildernesses. This is a cycle. He may enter into the city, but then he gets out into the local wilderness as quickly as possible. There's always a counterbalance. There's the city, and then there's the 
wilderness, but not in an abstract sense. Every time there's a city, there's a wilderness. And he goes into one of the cities, and then there's a wilderness there. He kept withdrawing into the wildernesses, because look what happens when he goes to the city. Remember, we talked about this a lot with Mark, where he was always going into the city. If ever he was in a city or a house, he tried to get out as quickly as possible, because look what happens. He goes into the city, and they misunderstand him. And so he's like, I'm out of here. That's Jesus. He goes in and does his job, and then he comes out. He says, I'm out of here. But then he has his duty to do, and he goes back into another one of the cities, and then he has to get back out into the wilderness again. This is how Jesus functions. The place where he is supposed to be is not the city. He has to be in the wilderness because that is where the Logos is. That's where he hears. That's where Jesus is going to hear this word, just as Moses heard this word. When God spoke the word, it was in the wilderness. That's the place of the word. That's the connection between Dabar and Midbar. The word is in the wilderness. And when he goes to the city and he preaches, it's a city word that gets passed along, which is no word. It's a word, but it's a vain word. It's an empty word. It's an empty word that if you hit Jesus up, he'll get you healed. Well, that's great until Jesus dies. Then what? Well, tough luck for us. Maybe we'll find another guy. But the word that he's trying to preach is one that comes from the wilderness. The fish come from the sea, and the word comes from the wilderness. He's doing his best to bring it to the city, but it was in vain because they came and they heard their own thing. When Jesus says, go and do what you're commanded by the word, and everybody says, you were healed? Instead of, you were obedient? Yesterday in the lectionary, we read about the 10 lepers, and the one who was willing to listen was the Samaritan. Why is he the Samaritan? Because he doesn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. He's just there to listen to the word. Whatever you say, Jesus, where did the other ones go? I don't know, but I came here because I owe you one, (laughs) a big one. So now I'm duty-bound to listen to this word. When one hears this word, as Father Paul says, it's free of charge, but with a charge. It's heavy to bear this word because you have a duty to this word now. You have to be there ready to do what is commanded by this word. And this is what he does his best to bring to the city. But this is why he has to get out of the city. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.